good morning. Thanks for coming to worship with us today. This is such an exciting time of the year, a convergence of so many good things. The outreach yesterday was amazing. Appreciate so many of you giving your time in, in the beginning of a holiday week to serve uh, many in the marginalized community around us with the love of Jesus and invite them into relationship uh, with us and with them, uh, with him. So grateful for that. Love that Advent is around the corner beginning next week. And Thanksgiving, of course, is this week. I hope that uh, you have plans that you're traveling or have folks visiting and uh, that it's a time of refreshing and, and uh, rest as well as joy. In the midst of that, today is a special day because this is the kickoff of our legacy offering today. We're in the series called Legacy as we look at each year around this time. And here at the end of service, we'll pray and begin in that uh, grace of giving together. Thinking about the, the special offering in church brought to mind this week the first time we did a special offering in the life of our new church plant maybe 10 years ago. And I was reading in the scriptures where King David is making provision for the temple, which his son Solomon, of course, went on to build. But he asks the people of Israel to give a special offering to make this temple. And David, of course, gives first in front of them. And I think it's a great leadership principle to do first in front of them what we ask people to do, right? And David gives lavishly and, and sacrificially. And I was praying about that offering as I had asked the congregation to do. And the Lord put something on my heart that was unexpected and new and sort of stopped me in my tracks. It's one of those subjective things, you know, when you hear from the Lord, most of us hear in a euphemistic sense. We discern, we sense. Sometimes it's strong, even unmistakable. Seldom is it objectifiably audible, at least for me. Maybe that's the way it happens for you, but I think that's part of the New Testament journey is learning to distill the leading of the Holy Spirit in each one of us, right? And so all that to say, I sensed the Lord... Um, prompt me to give away my car. And I wasn't ready for that. I didn't come from a tradition of lavish giving, of sowing a seed to get back a whatever, although I know that's part of a lot of people's faith tradition. So I come from very sensible, conservative-minded people who don't do frivolous, emotionally-based things. And so this was very suspect to me, but it had the slight Early, by, early return bias of a ring of authenticity because it was so unlikely to be something that would just come out of me. And uh, my car was, for the first time in my life, somewhat cool. I mean, it was the first nice-ish, I was in my late 30s, and we had planted a church, and it had not died after a couple of years, which, you know, beats the street. And I, I had gotten my first nice-ish car, um, which it may not be really nice for you or for me in this season of life, but it was nice for me then. And, and I really liked it a lot. Um, and so it's like, I was like, I don't know about that sacrificial. And so, but I couldn't shake it. And so I talked to a couple of wise elders, you know, the way that we'd learn to discern God's will by seeking counsel. And they're like, well, sometimes when we sense the Lord speaking to us, we're wise not to overthink it, or we can talk ourselves out of it. I'm like, I kind of want to talk myself out of it. 
But the, the day of the offering came and I still hadn't fully decided. And then in that moment, I thought, well, if this is Jesus, I can't lose. If it's not, well, there's worse things than being excessively generous. And so I'm just going to send it, uh, even though that wasn't a term yet. It was like five years before sending it got, was a thing, but I sent it. And, um, and so then I, I tapped into sort of my, my wife and charismatic background friends, Benny Hinn traditions of like, maybe the Lord's going to give me an even cooler car. Um, but what ended up happening was I took the light rail for quite some time. <laughs> um, and, and that was, that was really it. I think the bigger point of it in that time was about the wrestling in my heart. It was less about the thing, like God didn't need my car. Somebody else, I'm sure, benefited from it, but God can provide money in so many different ways. What he wanted was every vestige of my heart, and I realized there was a heartstring left to, to be cut, and I didn't even know it. And so... Um, as we're beginning our legacy offering season, coming into the holidays as we do every year, kicking off the holiday season that's become so consumeristic and self-indulgent in American culture, we do it by giving generously and, and uh, obediently, but cheerfully, without any pressure between us and the Lord. And remembering those early days and, and uh, taking the light rail on uh, cold Monday mornings, got me thinking about sacrifice. And that's our title this morning. Our series called Legacy has looked at the life of the patriarch Abraham at a glance, hitting the high moments and recognizing his legacy of faith and fruit. In Genesis 22, we pick up his story this morning sometime later, and this is quite some time later, as the story will reveal. God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, yes, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. This is at once perhaps the most familiar and confounding of Old Testament stories. One of those that we, if we grew up in the church, might have heard and seen on the flannel graph so many times that the, the weight of its meaning gets lost in us. One of those by turn, if we didn't grow up in the church with the flannel graph Sunday school lessons, is shocking, even off-putting. What are we to make of it? It's worth, in fact, it requires, I think, as intellectually honest students of Scripture, uh, a word of context. By this point, God had given to Abraham and Sarah the son he had promised them. Rice did a great job teaching us about that portion of his story last week. That which in itself seemed so improbable, but which was apart from the gift to Abraham and Sarah that they didn't dare hope or write down on the legacy board lest they jinx it. It seemed too good to be true, but was also part and parcel to the legacy of the descendants that would make a great nation. And God had long since brought Abraham and Sarah and their family and entourage to the land that he would give them. Now, 
whether they possessed it as such, whatever that even means, is unclear at this point, but they had lived comfortably in the promised land for quite some time, and they had grown to become quite old. Even in the context of how long people lived back then, Abraham, before he and Sarah had Isaac, was old and well-advanced in years, Scripture taught. So they were elderly and established, and it seemed like their story was concluded. And instead, we have this unexpected, even shocking climax to Abraham's story, which mirrors and parallels the first story we looked at when God intersected then Abram's life and called him to what we learned along the way would be God's covenant with Abraham and all of us, his descendants. It parallels that story in that here Abraham hears God say, Abraham, I want you to go to a place that I will show you. That's exactly the terminology God used and the ambiguity accompanying it when he called Abraham for the first time. And so what you can draw from that is that even in his old age, even when the promises seem to have been fulfilled, it's still a walk of faith that God's asking him for. I don't know about you, but I've experienced the journey with God to be a walk of faith, hopefully until it's not. Like my apocryphal understanding of God and his call to me is that you walk by faith until you pass the test or until you achieve the desired result. And then the reward of faith is sight. But you know what the scripture makes clear here in Abraham's life and so many stories beyond is the reward of having faith is getting asked to have more faith. And one day we will see face to face. Verse three, the story continues the next morning. Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants, and the boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. Most of Genesis, and indeed much of the Old Testament, is rendered to us in the literary form of Old Testament narrative or historical oral tradition narrative. And one hallmark of that literary form in ancient times is that the stories are very sparse or absent altogether on what the characters are thinking and feeling. We're left to infer that from their actions and from their words. And so from Abraham's words and actions, we can conclude, at least deduce a few things. One is that clearly he's not shocked. 
He's not shocked by this ask, even as it is undoubtedly difficult. Abraham is new to Yahweh, the God who revealed himself, but he's not new to the concept of deities. Since humankind had been on the earth, they had been searching, exploring. Scripture says God has placed eternity in the hearts of humankind, right? And so Abraham was familiar with the old gods, if you will. And in the way of the old gods, child sacrifice was par for the course. Now, that doesn't say that it's good. In fact, God makes it clear that it's detestable. But Abraham wouldn't have been surprised if God asked him to do that. It would be like somebody asking you to go and get a meal of junk food. You're like, oh, never, Lord. I live in Denver. I, I only eat mixed field greens that were organically grown and live a happy life. I, I would never eat fast food, but it wouldn't be like you couldn't comprehend it or nobody does it. It's just that we don't do it, right? So Abraham is not thrilled. We know that because um, as one commentator observed, he managed to squeeze a six-hour hike into a three-day journey. You know, he dragged his feet. Maybe he was like, hey, this is my last time with my son, so I'm going to do my last camping trip. And they meandered along the way. Abraham, some ask, lied, didn't he? When he told Isaac and his servants that accompanied them, God will provide the sacrifice. We'll be right back. Was Abraham fibbing or was he speaking hopefully? It would seem from that that Abraham was sad, not shocked. Like the ask wasn't as incomprehensible as it would be to us by any stretch. And at the end of the day, he was hopeful because he didn't know Yahweh well, but what he knew of him was inconsistent with this ask. And so he was hopeful that maybe God would provide a, a substitute offering. So clearly he must have been sad. He was confused, maybe even dismayed. And surely he didn't understand what God was up to. But all the same, Abraham was willing. He was willing to trust God, even when it seemed outrageous. And I think that may be the big idea here. He was willing to trust God even when it seemed outrageous. One scholar observed this story is about Abraham's willingness to do what God says, even when it is outrageous. When it concerns the fulfillment of God's own stated purpose. And when it goes against Abraham's feelings and sensibilities as a father. The story continues in verse 9. They arrived at the place where God had told them to go, and Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And this had to have gone down a little clunky. If Isaac's old enough to carry the wood, he's old enough to figure out what the junk is going on here and then try and fight back. And so there had to be a weird, painful, awkward wrestling match of sorts. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood, ultimately, and picked up the knife. It's disturbing, isn't it? To kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Same thing he said each time God called to him. I can imagine his like, what now? Do you want me to jump on the wood too? 
What else can I give you? Here I am, he says, totally resigned. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. You can't read this passage without acknowledging the uncomfortable center concept of human sacrifice. What on earth? If Abraham didn't know Yahweh well, we by contrast do after 6,000 years of people interacting with him and having him living in our hearts. How do we square this with what we know of God? Well, what we have to do when we study the scripture and we come into places of difficulty is understand the less clear or less easy to digest parts of scripture through the lens of, or in the light of, the more clear passages and ideas of Scripture. So here's what we know about God. He made it absolutely, incontrovertibly clear. In Leviticus chapter, two, chapter 20, as he was laying down the law for the people who were going to be his covenant community. He says, if any of the people, Moses, offer their children as a sacrifice to Molech, that's a, one of the pagan gods of the people whom God sent the people of Israel to drive out of the land precisely because of that wickedness. If anyone does that, they must be put to death. And in Jeremiah 32, he says, it never even crossed my mind to command such a thing as child sacrifice. What an incredible evil. However, it seems that God did just command a child sacrifice. So what do we do with that contradiction? We can pretend it's not there, try and explain it away so our non-Christian friends won't reject Christianity out of hand, or we can look at the God who is vastly bigger than our comprehension and say, here's what we know of him. He would never ask that, yet it seems that he asked that. So what was the point? Clearly it wasn't child sacrifice. That wasn't on God's mind. But it was something, and it was Abraham. This isn't a story about God's character. This isn't a revelation of God's nature. We have lots and lots of that. How many times does God reveal himself? Yahweh, the gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy to a thousand generations. That's who I am. This isn't primarily about God. The Old Testament narrative seeks to accomplish one thing. It's sort of a parallel to the New Testament parable in that regard. We can over-interpret the parables and try to make them allegories where everything has a correlative meaning and miss the big idea. You know, Jesus said, if the judge isn't even just, well, the judge is God. God is just. The point isn't that God might not be just. He's making a singular point. Following me? That's maybe what's happening here. We need to wrestle with that. So if God's not revealing himself or asking for child sacrifice or looking to make Abraham live in misery, then what is he doing? What is the point? 
I wonder if the point of this difficult passage may not be that God's ask is precisely so outrageous. That may be the point. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and mother, you have no place with me. One of the Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother, which clearly excludes hating them. Is Jesus negating the law? Of course not. He's saying something outrageous. He's using hyperbole to make a point, which is, I want to be first. I created you. You're wired for God to occupy that first spot alone. Maybe this is like that. It seems consistent with God's way being higher than our ways. And at first seeming confusing or downright hard. God the Father and Christ the Son are acting harmoniously there. In verse 2, here's maybe a little clue. He says, take your son. Yes, Isaac, that son. Yes, the Isaac whom you love so much. It feels like God's like rubbing it in. The one you love so much and go and sacrifice him. Fascinating fact. I bet you didn't know this. I didn't know this until four days ago. Did you know that love as a concept is mentioned some 360 times in the Bible and inferred dozens and dozens more? Depends on the translation, but around that. This is the very first reference to love here in Genesis 22. First time. I didn't believe it either. You're like, nah, it can't be. He had to have loved other people or other people had to have loved one another. I mean, um, who's the first guy? Adam knew his wife, knew in the, in the biblical sense, he knew his wife. And, and so you might hope that that means he loved her. It doesn't say it. I, I was like, I don't believe this, this scholar. I wasted time not believing the scholar. The scholar's job is to know these things. This is the first time love is referenced in the Bible. Love, the very concept that later we're told God is, as in God is love. If we do not love, we cannot know God, right? God, we're told, demonstrates his love for us in this. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The very preposterous, unthinkable act which this Old Testament narrative prefigures. God didn't withhold his own son, but sacrificed him because he loves us so much. Jesus, when asked by the religious scholars, what's the first and greatest commandment? What's the most important thing? How does the whole Old Testament boil down? And he said, what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. What's the verb? Love. The Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love permeates the entirety of the revelation of God in Scripture. This is the first time it's referenced. Why is that significant? It's referenced in the context of God asking for sacrifice. He acknowledges that Abraham doesn't just raise this son and provide for him and sacrifice so he can go to college and whatever, but he loves him. This son you love, I, God the Father, perhaps, I know what that father's love feels like. Take this son you love, you love him and sacrifice him. God isn't looking for Abraham to be miserable. God is a God of love, mercy, compassion, favor, kindness, grace, 
blessing we do not deserve. He's not looking to make an example of Abraham and grind him into the ground. Perhaps, though, he is looking for Abraham's complete trust, his wholehearted devotion. And that's the point of the sacrifice, right? It's not for its own sake. God doesn't need a dead boy. He says elsewhere, I take no delight in your sacrifice as such. It's not the sacrifice. It's what it means. Sacrifice demonstrates wholehearted devotion. Do you see it? Take the son you love and give him. Will you give up what you love most because I want you to love me first because I love you like that. And then you'll know what it means, how it feels, and how to live out the love for everyone and everything else I give you. Sacrifice demonstrates wholehearted devotion. Friends, I would suggest that the limit of our trust is found in what we will not give up. Sometimes what we will not give up, we will not articulate. We don't want to say it out loud. Maybe we won't even acknowledge it in conscious thought. But the limit of our trust, I believe, is found in what we will not give up. That's silly, but I didn't want to give up that used Audi A4. It was really cool. I really liked it. I like it. I still really like it. (laughs) Better than my Subaru. In Mark 10, Jesus had a guy that in the world's eyes had it all demonstrate genuine love, came and ran up to Jesus, fell on his knees before him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't look at the man and reject him. He didn't look at the man and condescend to him because he wasn't really living for God. He looked at the man and loved him, Mark 10, and said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What is that? Entire traditions of church have missed the point around this verse making godliness akin to self-imposed poverty. The guy's like, all? Is Jesus asking for us to give everything away and be impoverished? If I'm the disciples looking at that, and then remembering later when Zacchaeus, you know, has a repentant moment and also comes running up to Jesus and also falls on his knees, and then Jesus says, I'm going to have dinner at your house, and he's like, hey, Lord, here today, I'm giving away half of everything I own. And if I'm the disciples, I'm like, well, Jesus didn't tell him, what about the other half, man? Come on, pony up. I'm like, maybe I do the law of averages. Maybe it's three quarters and I'm good. Maybe I can at least hold on to like, you know, my grandma's pearls or something. What was Jesus getting at with that man? Simple. What he said in so many words on the mountain that day, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus didn't want that dude's money. He wanted his heart. He didn't want Abraham's dead son. He wanted his heart. And friends, that's why we start off the holiday season here at Denver United with sacrificial giving. Because we are steeped in consumer self-indulgence from birth. It's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. And no time elevates those culture forces to central in our perception and our pursuit like the holiday season. The very time, ironically, when we remember Jesus and too few are the opportunities 
to get that thing rightly ordered. For many of us, our heart is there in our culture's value for prosperity, success, affluence, keeping up with the Joneses, material gain. For many of us, our heart is there more than we want to acknowledge. The um, late 20th century prophet Madonna had it truer than she knew. We are living in a material world. I'm going to stop there because I am not a material girl, but the first half was very accurate. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you've obeyed me and not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore and your descendants. They will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants, all the nations on the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. I think this story, this Genesis 22 story, this difficult Bible story that as a pastor in the 21st century in a post-everything city like Denver, it's tempting to skip over. This story is case in point for understanding Abraham's legacy. You can't tell his story honestly without this one. This is a story of wholehearted trust producing mind-blowing fruit. It's wholehearted trust producing mind-blowing fruit. It's not just that God blessed Abraham because he got lucky or God decided that he was the one he was going to bless. It was that God called him, tested him, tested him, and tested him again. Abraham was far from perfect, but he was faithful and he was willing. And God blessed him and blessed him and blessed him and established his descendants and multiplied his descendants and gave him the great nation he promised His name lived on. Abraham's generational impact exceeded what he could possibly have comprehended. It would would have been impossible for him to imagine us sitting here in November 2022 in Denver, Colorado, talking about him and this story. And as a father of our faith, he shows us something important, and that is that our legacy extends beyond our imagination. Ephesians 3, God is able, as I told you earlier, through his mighty power at work in us to do infinitely more than all we can ask or imagine. It's tempting to make this Abraham legacy lesson into a transaction, a faith vending machine arrangement. We sacrifice in order to get. Abraham, at this point, likely did not have any understanding of, nor really give a lot of thought toward what he was going to get. It was all about devotion to God. You know, I would love to tell you that 
somebody came to me and was like, you know what? I have a, I have a brand new BMW M5. The Lord put it on my heart last week at some weird time just to give it to you. I think there was something in me that hoped that, you know, you give it away and you're going to get it back because that's the way it's supposed to work, right? But that's thinking about the stuff of God through the prism of American materialism. God has given me so much. It didn't include a cool car. My Subaru now, get, when you stop at the red lights to get on I-25, literally gets on I-25 one-third as fast as my old car did. And that's like flooring it. He gave me the grace to take the light rail for several months. What have I done? We didn't live in Washington Park either where I could walk to work, by the way. This is when the church was on the campus of the University of Denver, and I lived in Centennial in Homestead. And so it was like a long bike ride to get to like the Arapaho Station and then the light rail. And that was very uncool in the winter. But here I know this, 2 Corinthians 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Yeah, material grace, but he's able to make all grace abound to me. So that in all things, not just the stuff of cars and houses and clothes and wealth and 401ks and the things that we're so preoccupied with that the rest of the world and the rest of the history of the Christian church hasn't had the luxury of being so preoccupied with, not just in those things, but in everything. Having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Sacrificial generosity demonstrates total trust in God. Trust for the provision, having all you need, and trust for the possibility you will abound in every good work for the provision and the possibility. There was never a cooler car. I'm still open to God fulfilling that promise in a time-release fashion, by the way, if he's putting it on your heart. Just kidding. But there was never a cooler car yet in front of my house. But you know what? There is a church right here in the middle of Denver on Broadway when the church for the last two decades has fled this city like the plague and the message in Denver has been, oh Jesus, we've sort of advanced beyond that. You can go down to Colorado Springs and find him there. A place where the churches, historic buildings that men and women of faith sacrificed a century ago to build are being turned into nightclubs and condos and dispensaries and everything else but churches. There's a church here. There's a church here that was forced to be closed for a year and somehow didn't crumble. I'm still not quite sure how that happened. And God is rebuilding stronger, healthier, more authentic. As I look at how God gives us the desires of my heart, I have to say that's a deeper desire of my heart than a whole fleet of European automobiles. God can do all, make all grace abound. He can do more than all we ask or imagine. One way we experience that is our own legacy down the line, being so vastly greater in influence like Abraham than we could have imagined. Another is in the collective impact of our legacy. 
We see this play out in our being part of Jesus's church, persevering, building for the next century, for the next generation. They will tell the stories of how men and women of faith at the dawn of the holiday self-indulgence season went and drove bags with turkeys and Cool Whip and canned yams into neighborhoods where people who are struggling to make ends meet experience not a transaction, but the love of Jesus. How this city needs the love of Jesus. Trusting God sacrificially, we are investing not only in a personal legacy, but also in a much larger collective legacy. Isaiah 56, this is one of my new favorite verses. I discovered this when Lucy and I were studying for next month's series in Isaiah, and I did find a place for it, Luce. It says this, I will give them within the walls of my house. I will give them within the walls of my house. Listen, a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. Now, sons and daughters can give us a pretty good name and a a lasting memorial. I'll make their influence greater. I'll make their legacy more profound within the walls of my house. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. Our influence collectively within the walls of the house of God is immeasurable. Over the course of the last year alone, through your generosity and sacrifice in 2021's legacy offering on this day, a year ago, We had the opportunity when disaster struck on four occasions to respond immediately and generously in the Boulder fire and the Ukraine war and Tropical Storm Bonnie down in Nicaragua. We had the opportunity to help send four individuals or families on the mission field long-term for the first time beyond our regular missionary support. They asked and every expectation is, you know what? Our missions budget in March is already established, but check back with us next fall. Well, their decision to go or not go, their ability to obey God, the response to their step of faith was happening in March and you are able to respond and that's awesome. Five local initiatives we discovered, including care for the homeless, mentorship of at-risk youth, and supporting refugee families in crisis. We were able simply to say yes and help and to come alongside a church in the Metro Denver area that's starting in 2022. Starting a church is a low odds proposition in any time in history. At this time, it's professional suicide, apart from the grace of God. We got to get behind them and say yes, when funding is so scarce. And that's just a few of the ways that your sacrificial generosity established collectively a legacy that will outlive us in this city. Year after year after year, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, God gives us the chance to say yes. That's the purpose of the legacy offering, friends, that we might be generous as scripture teaches, that we might be able to be generous on every occasion. It's important to note that all of those and so many more like them 
them. Those missions enterprises, those responses of yes, those were all over and above our collective regular missions giving. Our partnerships in the city, among the poor and marginalized and hopeless, in the darkest corners of planet Earth with our global missions partners, around the country in helping churches get started. This is all over and above that. That is radical, sacrificial generosity. So we're going to give all who are willing. My hope is to inspire. My hope is to contextualize the opportunity in the context of faith. It's not pressure. Don't feel any pressure. This is a free will offering. We do it once a year. We don't do the special offering every time a guest speaker comes. We don't ask you to hold up your checkbooks and any of that stuff. This is between you and God. This is intended to be over and above your normal giving. So you're like, well, I don't normally give. Then maybe at this time, the best step would be become a regular worship giver. This is separate from your regular giving. If you simply take your normal giving and designate it legacy, that's kind of like robbing Peter to pay Paul. All that does is create an extra administrative headache for Christine. This is sacrificial generosity. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, that offering David took, it said the people rejoiced over the offerings for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And King David was filled with joy. So rejoicing freely and wholeheartedly. That's how I believe God invites us to give. So that's how I invite you to give. This morning, the Legacy offering opens up and it'll stay open for three weeks. That's our custom each year during the holiday season. And I can tell you, there has been nothing more sacrificial and nothing more profoundly impacting to my own family's faith than giving sacrificially at the start of the holiday season, knowing I got presents to buy and probably Christmas decorations to update. You know, I found out the red decoration balls are so out. That's like so 2016. Now you got to go buy different color balls. We all have a lot to spend money on, like spiral hams and things like that. We've got 25 people coming over this afternoon for Friendsgiving. I have this monstrous turkey that I got to go home and put in the oven. We all have stuff to spend our money on. We do too. It's been so life-giving to my family to start the season of spending with sacrificial faith-giving, and I hope it will be for you. So would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then respond in worship. If you want to give, the easiest way to do it is just go to denverunited.com. You can do it right on your phone. You can pray about it over the course of the week. Just don't procrastinate in the name of praying about it and put it off. Do or don't do, right? I found that if I overthink that impulse to give, I can always justify not doing it. You can go to Denver United. It'll be right there on the splash page when you log on and then just select the legacy fund where you drop down instead of tithes and offerings as you would normally. Or if you prefer to give by cash or check, you can do it with the envelopes there uh, on the back of the seats this morning and just write legacy on there. And you can drop those in the boxes in the back. Let's take some time and just ask the Holy Spirit. I challenge you, ask the Holy Spirit, how would you like me to give? And if you're like, you know what? I don't know. I, I, I want to want it, but I don't know if I'm, I have that heart of willingness. Would you ask the Holy Spirit this? Would you give me, would you give me willingness to give?
Maybe you're like, you know what? I don't know if I want to be willing to give (laughs) because that means I'm going to be struggling later in December. Well, God, would you give me the desire to be willing to give wherever you are? I love that about the Holy Spirit. Did you know he meets us right where we are? So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we surrender this to you this matter of giving, it's become so raw and sensitive in the church. And we repent for that, for making something so full of grace become so full of greed instead. Lord, we have nothing to do with that. We want wholehearted devotion. Wholehearted devotion and mind-blowing fruit. It's like the peanut butter and jealousy, peanut butter and jealousy. It's like the peanut butter and jelly. I bet nobody has ever said that in prayer in the history of the Christian church. That was a first. All right, back to the Lord. That's like the peanut butter and jelly of legacy, wholehearted devotion, mind-blowing fruit. Lord, we want you to find us faithful. Would you speak to us about sacrifice? the start of this holiday season. Would you make us willing, if that's where we're at, to sacrifice? Would you give us the desire to be made willing to sacrifice? Wherever we are, Holy Spirit, come and meet us there. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray.